IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week. We review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about albums by Illuminati Hotties and Strand of Oaks. My name is Stephen Hyden and I'm joined by my friend and co-host... The winner of the Polaris Prize, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Well, just starting right off the bat, like rubbing this disappointment in my face. You know, I I had made a five-year plan in 2016 that I was going to be the first person to review Jules Santana and Dead Prez albums at Pitchfork before going on to win Canada's Most Prestigious Music Award. And, you know, Cadence Weapon, a.k.a. well, Raleigh Pemberton, a.k.a. Cadence Weapon, uh beat me to it. So, you know, yeah. I, I got to give my congratulations where it's due. Raleigh, a, a writer for Pitchfork. Like an old school, an old school Pitchfork writer. Like, like 20 years ago, like early 2000s. Yeah. And the, and the, and the thing I appreciate about him is that like a lot of the, you know, music writers that go on to make mu like go on to make music themselves or, you know, kind of more like cerebral or like uh, high-minded or whatever. Like, and Raleigh is all of those things. But like, if you look back at some of his reviews from that time, it's like the stuff that you can never get away with right now. Like, uh, dead wrong reviews, but also like hilarious. You got to find the one he did on Dead Prez. Um, I mean, are we are we going to get Raleigh canceled here after he won this prestigious award? Like, are are the voters of the Polaris <laughs> Prize going to go look at the pitch like Pitchfork archives and say we've made a terrible mistake? By honoring Raleigh? I think every four months I bring up the fact that he once called uh, Joel Santana's Dipset Santana's Town the worst song of the year, that year being 2003, which for my money is the most wrong opinion ever published on Pitchfork. And that includes the original Bleed American and Clarity review, so... Well, shout out to Raleigh. We're proud. I don't. Do you know Raleigh at all? I don't uh, know him I think him and I may have like interacted like once or twice about... Uh, uh, like death joke stuff on Twitter, but no, I don't. I don't really know him personally. But shout out to I mean, him. Like, have you listened? To, I, I'm familiar with Cadence Weapon as a as a name, but I don't think I've ever listened to Cadence. Yeah, Weapon. I mean it's like, good. It's is, it's good stuff. It's like um, yeah, it's it, he's had like a very interesting career. Um, and the fact that like he's been doing this for a very very long time. Um, but, you know he's wait. What kind of music? is Oh, it? it's hip hop. It's a, okay. it's it's more like indie minded hip hop, like the sort of thing that you know the I I mean this with all due respect that like the kind of stuff that was you know kind of big uh, would have been big at Pitchfork in like you know the mid to late two thousands. Um, and he's been doing this since like two thousand five. I think this most recent album, the one that Parallel World was his fifth album. His first album was called Breaking Kayfabe, which I think can kind of give you the. Uh, indication of uh where you know like what what his uh you know what his uh milieu is lyrically or at least it was back then and yeah also he's been on like liars remixes um and jacques green okay. and buck 65 so very much and, indie hip-hop it, it, and is he canadian I, like i, I hope so <laughs> i mean so you, so you have to be canadian to win that award yes i like that the Canadians made that distinction because, you know, here in America, we have the Grammys. We give Grammys to anybody. You don't have to be an American to win I a Grammy. I don't know if they're ours to give, though. <laughs> like I th- Well, I'm just saying yeah. that, you know, there's, there's, we, we're not, uh, there's, there's no sort of natural, uh, nationalistic uh, distinction made that you have to be an American. 
I think they usually give it to Americans, but it, it's not written into the rules. But uh, well, Canada's got their own like radio rules where you have to like play like native Canadians. I think a certain amount no. of times per hour, and that's how like bands like the Tragically Hip or like Our Lady Peace or I, we get we gotta get Steve from Pup on here to explain this because like he does this on Twitter every now and again, and it's like I need to hear more. <laughs> Well, we we have a Canadian uh, uh, quota on this show. We, we like to bring <laughs> yeah, up Canada we do. At, at least like every once a month. You know, we want to bring up Canada because we love Canada. Shout out to the Canadians. Yeah, we we get lots of letters from Canada. All of Canada, uh, not not just Toronto, not just Montreal, but like you know Alberta. Yeah, that's why I feel like I need to mention you know Sloan's <laughs> between the bridges. Yeah. Uh, every now and then, you know, just just for our Canadians out there, um, and also, you know, yeah, we don't really know Raleigh personally, but I feel like we both feel pride for music critics uh, achieving things outside of the music critic realm, especially if they make their own records, right? I mean, cause we feel like, oh, in a way, maybe we also won the Polaris Prize. <laughs> yeah, let's look at the big winners of the Polaris Pride indie cast. Exactly. But yeah, I was thinking about like other great uh, musicians who were also former music critics. I was thinking about like Patti Smith, the the legendary really? punk rock singer songwriter. She, I, I believe, she had uh, bylines in like Rolling Stone huh. and Cream in the early seventies before she she blew up. Uh, Chrissy Hind of the Pretenders. She wrote for the New Musical Express in the seventies, and then she formed. This great band, The Pretenders, and, th- and she also had a kid with Ray Davies, which is pretty incredible. Uh, if you're a music critic and you can have a kid with Ray Davies, uh, that seems like a dream <laughs> for anyone who ever loved Village Green Preservation Society. Um, I believe, like, Jeff Tweedy dabbled really? in music writing. Huh. Yeah, I don't think he was ever published beyond, like, a, maybe, like, a school paper or something. So, but are, I think are you, are you saying that. that we're more successful than Jeff Tweedy in some uh, forums? Yes, in the music critic realm... Uh, we're wiping the floor with Jeff Tweedy. Yeah, take that he's heavy not, metal drummer. Although he's catching up because he's he's writing books now, and he has a Substack oh, too. We're we're screwed, man. So 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 Tweedy is like, okay, I'm in my fifties now. It's time to catch up with my music critic career. I've 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 I have a legendary you know musician career, but I I have like unfinished business for my music critic uh, side of myself. So. Yeah. I think he's he's gunning for us now. I don't like that. Yeah, by the way. it's like p- pick a lane. We're done for. We I know it's like come on. We 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 pick music criticism because we thought <laughs> we can be moderately big fish in a small pond. Now you have Jeff Tweedy coming in. He's gonna wipe us all out of business. Yeah, you're giving the way the game right here that we're all just like stifled musicians. Now like now Jeff Tweedy is horny in our territory. I mean, if if Craig Finn ever starts a stub stack, like we're we're we are. Oh, like it, we are just done for. So, ugh. yeah, he could kill it. He 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 would murder. I hope us he doesn't listen. Like to, I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. Don't get any ideas, Craig. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, I've got I've got kids to feed here. Um, do we want to talk about R. Kelly at all? Oh, uh, yeah. This seems like it. Like, I mean, in the slow, steady process of him finally uh, getting justice, um, I think that we've seen some bigger like. It just seems like the news for him gets like worse and worse and like more fitting for like what he deserved all along. Yeah, I mean, well, we should just say for those who don't know that he was found guilty this week on nine federal charges of sex trafficking and racketeering. 
I believe that there were 11 people that testified against him in the trial, which is like the tip of the iceberg yeah. with, with R. Kelly. I mean, it, it really is like dozens of people whose lives he ruined yeah. over the course of 20-odd years. Um, you know, we talk a lot on the show about the year 2013 being a turning point in modern indie history. And another big thing that happened in 2013 was that R. Kelly headlined the Pitchfork Festival. Yep. <clears throat> and uh, I'm fascinated by this in retrospect. Look, you know, I don't want to be too judgmental about critics back then. You and I were both critics at that time. I was at too. that festival. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, the fog of war and all of that. It's it's easier in retrospect to look back on something with, with clarity than maybe there was at the time. Yeah. But it there is something about R. Kelly that I think exposed um, a certain shallowness mm. of, of regarding the engagement with commercial R&B that was happening in indie rock circles mm -hmm. at the time. That uh, I think people looked at R. Kelly for a long time as this ironic or even like comic figure yeah. who, like you, you knew him from the Chappelle Show skit that he's alleged, you know, that he peed on people and like, oh, isn't he a quirky? Dude, and of course, what's excised from that Chappelle show skit is that he was caught on video urinating on an underage girl. Yeah, uh, you know, and this was among many things that he had been accused of. That was all documented mm -hmm. in stories. I think Jim De Regatis, who's a hero of this story, I, I think he wrote his first story in 1999. Yeah, it was like for for. Years and years and years. So like 14 years before he played Pitchfork. And this is all happening in Chicago uh, yeah, all as well. Which I think, you know... there Right in his backyard. Yeah, I think there was an argument. The fact that like this was happening in Chicago made it a lot like... Uh, you know, it's like, well, the courts, you know, like didn't do their job. But also, like, I think we have to look at the fact that like this was all happening in Chicago, which probably made it you know, more difficult to, uh, maybe the fact that it's federal charges. I, I don't know. I don't want to get into the legal stuff of it, but yeah, I mean, I think what with Jim Derogatis, like he was just beating this drum for a very long time on behalf of the victims. And, you know, I, uh, God, I, I, I saw like a tweet recently from Steve Albini and, you know, another Chicago fixture, um, like a salute to Jim for fighting the good fight while he said less serious music critics, I believe in quotes, uh, looked away in order to maintain access. And uh, I don't know. Like, yeah, I saw that tweet. Yeah, and it's uh, he's right, but I don't think for the wrong, the right... Like, I don't think... And, it's not about access yeah, like, at all. I, I, it's not like R. Kelly was, like, getting a lot of interviews or, you know... I, I think the access thing is always overblown. Um, you know, and to, as, as first off, I think this... This, it, this sort of mindset grants critics way too much power. It was certainly not us propping R. Kelly up all those years. Uh, and it certainly wasn't to maintain access. But I think you're right in that he was seen, particularly during the Trap in the Closet era, as this kind of self-aware, quasi-ironic, like, um, artist. He was, you know, in a lot of ways, making still making very relevant uh, music in a way, you know, in a way that, like, some similarly tr troubling artists weren't. And you, you make a great point that if you were a get like even with all we knew, even like all of it was being made of a joke, like if you brought that up in the context of like, you know, Trapped in the Closet or the Ignition Remix or whatever, it's like you were seen as like a killjoy. And I think this speaks to oh, yeah. the, the greater fear a lot of writers have of being seen as a square, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that was why uh, critics were downplaying this for a very long time. That you know, because I think with with De Regatis, I remember during the Pitchfork Festival, he held. He was doing this like series of videos called the Kelly Conversations, like where he was interviewing uh. critics and and uh, about De Regard about um, R. Kelly, and I, I think the point was to keep the dialogue going about his allegations during this festival. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time, I mean, the perception of Jim among a lot of critics was that yeah, he was a killjoy, that he was a scold, that he was an old guy who didn't get it. Yeah, and which is. I think more than anything, if we talk about the vanity of music critics, <laughs> that's the one thing that they're the most afraid of is being accused of like being old or out of it or against uh, pop music. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, and again, look, I mean, shout out to Jim. And I'll just say, like, I know Jim a little bit. He's always been very nice to me. Um, I think he's been nice to like a lot of younger music critics. Not that I'm a younger music critic anymore, <laughs> but when I was a younger yes. critic, he was very nice to me. Um, but he, you know, I admire him because he's always gone against the grain, mm-hmm. and I think because of that, during the R. Kelly stuff in the early 2010s, I think people looked at him as a gadfly, you know, that he was just tweaking Pitchfork for the sake of you know tweaking Pitchfork, and maybe they didn't take the actual substance of what he had reported seriously, mm-hmm. and that tide didn't turn for another few years. But you know, to me, like looking back on that, I think it's worth taking stock of the mistakes that were made in the critical in the critical community yeah. at that time and i i don't think you can ignore the racial element here nope. either <laughs> where you have white indie rock fans who came to R Kelly because of trapped in the closet mm-hmm. for the most part and then they played catch up with a lot of his back catalog mm-hmm. and what R Kelly exposed I think was the shallowness again of a lot of that engagement that yeah. people really didn't know that much about him. I mean, even if you didn't know anything about like what De Regatis had reported about all of these victims uh who were ignored for a long time. R Kelly also had an extremely creepy relationship with Aaliyah. Yeah, that was like all public. <laughs> that was all public and what, what was she like 15 or 16 when they were allegedly Yeah. Or, I mean they were married, right? Or yeah. Or they they went through a ceremony. I don't know if it was legal mm. or not. But like that derailed that sort of thing derailed Jerry Lee Lewis's career in the fifties. Yeah. Know, like <laughs> when he married a teenager. And yet, for whatever reason, I think again, because of ignorance, basically, people really yeah. just didn't know much about him. Um, that was overlooked for a really long time. Yeah, and you look at like Oh, you know, this was pre me too, and people weren't as like up to speed on how to do that. But I mean, like, you know, you look at like Chris Brown around the same time. Uh, you know, people like he was a not a commercial prior. Like he still has a very a thriving career, but like you could not take Chris Brown seriously as a critic. Like after you know he assaulted Rihanna in two thousand nine, and you know, like saying like three, four years later he's playing a indie rock music festival. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's just so much like how. I mean, to ask, like, how this happened and we actually lived through it, um, it, it's just mind-boggling. But I think at the end of the day, it's just kind of great that he's, you know, fine. Like, I think with what we see with this, with Marilyn Manson, with, you know, what's happening with Britney Spears, it's just, like, a kind of long-awaited writing of uh, wrongs that were allowed to fester for a very, very long time. Yeah. It's just fascinating to, like, live through something like that because it does give you a perspective on other scandals that have happened in the past where you thought 
how could people have excused that or overlooked that? You know, mm. like we, if you look at things in the seventies or eighties, but this is something that happened not that long ago. Yeah. Uh, that I think it just, it, to me, it was a perfect storm of, you know, in a way that, and again, it's not that long ago, but I feel like back then it was it was easy to forget a story if people weren't talking about it. It was almost like this is a scandal that happened in the past, and and. And then people sort of forget about it, and they let it trail off. I mean, that that was the same thing with Bill Cosby for the longest yeah. time. People knew about accusations against him, but it was like, well, I'm not hearing about it, so that must mean that it was all, uh, you know, cleared up. You know, it must not have been an issue because no one's talking about right. it. Um, and I think there was a there was a feeling of that almost like with, with R. Kelly. So you have this almost like weird amnesia that I think existed at that time, as well as I think. A, a sea change in critical uh, orthodoxy, yeah. where people really wanted to embrace someone like R. Kelly mm-hmm. at that time, and it just created this thing where, uh, again, I like to me, like when we talk about canceled artists, there's artists who have said terrible things mm-hmm. that they've gotten canceled for. You know, like Morrissey, for instance. I mean, he's said a lot of terrible things, uh, but R. Kelly is a whole other level. Yeah, I mean. He might be the worst musician in terms of the crimes that he's committed. I mean, I guess there's been musicians who have killed people. You know, there's been murderers. Yes, yeah, it's, it's hard for us to really like, uh, you know, place crimes on a hierarchy. But like, well, in terms of the volume, yes. Though, <laughs> I mean, you know, and yeah, I, just the number of people that he has hurt is just—it's mind-boggling. And uh, and he was able to do that almost in plain sight mm-hmm. for decades. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's going to be interesting. I think. I, I, I think it's worth being introspective about that. If you if you write about music, if you cover music, yeah. um, and it seems like a lot has changed since 2013. But uh, I don't know. It it could happen again. I guess. I think it's just worth thinking about. So why don't we go to our mailbag segment here. And again, uh, thank you all for writing in. Uh, we get so many great questions, but we can always use more. So mm-hmm. make sure to hit us up at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on Twitter. We're at IndieCast1. Uh, so if you want to ask a question there, that, that that's great too. If you wanna har- and if you want to harass the uh, holder of the IndieCast Twitter, no, don't do that. <laughs> Oh, so, yeah, that's right, because there is another IndieCast. Yeah. We, that's why we're IndieCast 1. Use our street army to get the original IndieCast name. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, We're, we're, we're initiating legal proceedings as we speak. <laughs> uh, we've, got a, we've got a high-powered team of lawyers. Nice Twitter handle. It would be a shame if something happened to it. <laughs> yeah, we're, not say, we're not making any threats. We're just saying we're, it'd be a shame. Yeah. If, uh, you know... Uh, the Many Saints was, in Newark uh, in theaters this weekend. I know we're going to see that. <laughs> if, a, if, a rock, if a rock went through your uh, indie... If a rock went through your Twitter avatar, we're just saying that, you know, that yeah. could happen. We're not, we're not saying we will do that, but it, it, it might happen. Um, do you want to read the first question? Yes, I do. So uh, this question comes to us from Jason in Southington, Connecticut, which, you know, phenomenally Connecticut uh, city name. Uh, this one is to the point. Do you guys ever mosh? Or if you don't anymore, was there a period of time that you used to? 
Uh, this is a great question. Uh, Jason actually wrote like a longer email than this, but uh, it was he told like a story about uh, people moshing at an Oso Oso uh, <laughs> front bottom show. Uh, uh, wow, that that, it, that that was like the other day, huh? Yeah, so it was a, but it was it was a little bit long. So Jason, I had to edit you a little Aww. bit. I thought we'd just get to the meat of the question, but he's asking, uh, have we ever moshed? Why don't you go first, Ian? So, <laughs> have you ever moshed before? <laughs> I I don't know if I talked about this on the last episode, but um, my first memories of like finding out what moshing really was is um, it must have been like the 1992 Super Bowl, and my brother, my older brother, had some of his friends over, and uh, during the halftime show, they put on Nevermind and started moshing to Territorial Pissings. Um, and that, I'm not going to say that was like the last time I moshed because that's almost certainly not true, but, um, you know, it's fun. Can I just say quick, I just want to say quick, I have a very similar story to that (laughs) because the first time I ever moshed was in, also in 1992, uh, my friends and I, we all pitched in to get a pay-per-view concert of Guns N' Roses. Oh, wow. In uh, Paris, I think it was. And Soundgarden was the opening act, and this was like Bad Motorfinger. And uh, I remember we moshed uh, to Rusty Cage. Yeah. That, you know what? Rusty Cage. Yeah, better that than like Slaves and Bulldozers, because that shit's way too slow. But yeah, um, it wouldn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that was like my first experience with it. And, you know, like during my, I guess, what one would consider to be my prime moshing years, like let's say, I don't know, 17 to 24 years old. I, I was for the most part listening to like the wimpiest indie music or like mainstream rock because like when you mention like Guns N' Roses or Soundgarden, like yeah, you could potentially mosh that, but they're also playing these like gigantic stadiums at that time, so you know it doesn't quite seem the same. But you know I may have like dabbled in it, but you know like I'm a smaller guy and I wear glasses, like I just have this. You know, we talked in the past about like our mortal fears of having to use like the porta potty at festivals. Um, you know, for me, it's like what happens if like my glasses get broken in in the pit, so to speak, and you know I can't drive home. Um, I I don't can you know I, I'm totally cool with moshing. I know like some artists have famously uh, from the stage said to not do that. I think like Fugazi was one of them, and Joyce Manor I think got in a little bit of hot water for saying that it is kind of reflective of like this, I don't know, like macho aggro sort of thing. But I also will watch mosh videos all day long. Like, you know, I saw one from like the fiddlehead show in LA, which looked fucking, and I look at it, it's like, this is fucking amazing. And I'm like, I would absolutely in no way, shape or form participate in that. Yeah. Uh, It looks, it looks cool. Almost from like a, like a, like the flash mob. (laughs) remember like when flash mobs were a thing and you do the overhead shot you mean back like that back in 2020 during the pete Buttigieg uh campaign oh that's true i guess (laughs) yeah those those are the good old days look i still hear high hopes on the radio and oh man yeah awful but yeah i mean my one in-person moshing experience was in uh i guess it was 96 I saw Rancid on the Out Came the Wolves tour. Oh yeah, at at the rave in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I uh, <laughs> was really excited for Rancid to come out. I pushed my way up to the front, and they came out. I believe they played Maxwell Murder first, and it was this experience I'll never forget, where the crowd was so tightly packed up front that you ended up moshing as a big blob. Yeah, like my. Like my feet were lifted a couple inches off the ground, 
by this mob of people, so I couldn't really move, like, control my body. I, I was just part of this big organism moving to and fro. And then the song ended, and like everyone fell over. So like, this <laughs> really big dude fell over on me. So in a way, it wasn't. It was kind of a mosh pit, but it was also just like a, it. It was like we were one body of people of dude, <laughs> you know, affixed together, and we were moshing as one. And after that, I got the hell out of there and went uh, to the back of the venue. I'm like, this is not for me. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm just not built for this sort of thing because it was it was scary. I didn't like it at all. It, I, it was just. You felt like you didn't have control of your own body or of any of the people around you. So, I don't know. I don't take a moral stance on moshing. I just know, not for me. As long as, like, people... Because sometimes you get near the mosh pit and dudes are, like, throwing other dudes into people who are just standing on the side. I don't like that. I think, you know, fight amongst yourselves. That's great. But if you're going to be a jerk and push other people that don't want to be pushed, that's when I object to it. Yeah. Yeah, also, I think that there needs to be some sort of legislation on, like, what band you can mosh to. Like, I, I don't see, like, moshing to Oso Oso really, like, uh, really uh, really heightening the experience, you know? Yeah, and and I think, again, like, if the band says don't do it, yeah, then don't respect do it. the band. <laughs> um, let's move on to our second question. This comes from Dave in Glen Ellen, Illinois. Oh, that's an IndieCast town. I know. I always feel like that's another one, like North Canton, where I'm like, is that a real uh, city name? Because Glen Ellen, that just sounds like, uh, you know, like, did he play bass in Dismemberment Plan back in the day? Ooh. I mean, Glen Ellen. Uh, you know, it sounds like uh, it sounds like a dude that played in the '90s band. <laughs> really, that name. Um, you touched on this a little bit in last week's episode when you talked about Anthony Kiedis, and it got me thinking. You both interview a lot of musicians. What are some other artists you find to be interesting people or interview subjects, even though you don't necessarily love their music? Uh, that's a good question, Dave. Uh, because I, I, I do find, I don't know about you, Ian, I've had experiences interviewing people uh, where I wasn't a fan, and I ended up loving the conversation. Mm-hmm. And that happened, that happened a lot when uh, in the early days of my career when I worked for a daily newspaper... And I would just have to interview whatever musician was coming through the area. <laughs> so I ended up interviewing a lot of country artists. And I interviewed a lot of uh, like dudes from 80s hair metal bands. Like I remember one of the great interviews I did at that time was with uh, C.C. DeVille from Poison. Who was... And you know, I mean, I, I'm uh, sort of... Uh, I don't have an opinion one way or the other on Poison. I kind of like some of their songs just as fun party music, you know, nothing but a good time, things like that. Uh, certainly was not a huge fan and, and, and might have even t- took like a dim view of Poison back in those days. But C.C. DeVille was this gregarious person. He had amazing stories about, you know, going into bad parts of town when he was an addict and you know, buying drugs and like drinking like paint thinner mm. when he didn't have any alcohol in his house, and he and and he had such a like self aware um, attitude about himself. Like he 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 wasn't deluded at all about his place in the world, which I found was true of a lot of people from that world. Like whenever I would interview someone from Warrant or Rat, <laughs> whenever or I interviewed someone from Warrant, this this suggests well, it happens multiple times. <laughs> it happened. It happened a lot. Never Janie Lane, unfortunately. Oh. I would have liked to talk to Janie Lane before he uh, passed. Uh, but 
I always found them to be really refreshing and, uh, and they had great stories and, uh, I loved it. I mean, sometimes like when you interview a musician that you really admire, it can be nerve wracking and, and maybe even disappointing if they don't have a whole lot to say. Yeah. Whereas if it's someone that you don't really care about musically, uh, it's just like talking to a person mm-hmm. and you can be a little bit more removed uh, in that respect, but I mean, have you had good experiences <laughs> I, interviewing musicians you don't really like? I, I just love the fact that Dave from Glen Allen, Illinois, like I just love that sentence. Like you talked about Anthony Kiedis and it got me thinking like that's, <laughs> we, we're offering food for thought whenever we discuss Anthony Kiedis. It's a prompt for greater discussion. Um, you know, you, you mentioned 80s hair metal dudes. Like I, you know, I didn't have that the Beatles in Hamburg uh, phase where I was kind of <laughs> doing my thing at the uh, local newspaper. But um, I guess there's like kind of a corollary to the eighties hair metal dudes uh, in that when you talk to nineties, alt rock dudes um, there, one of the many shuttered publications that I've written for over the years, like I think it might've been like live nation TV or something. I'd get the opportunities to oh, do. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, when was that? Fuck, man. I, I don't need... Like, we could do an entire episode of, like, places that I've written for in the past, like, 20 years that have just gone, like, completely dark. Uh, everything disappears. Um, I mean, like, Live Nation TV, that sounds vaguely dystopian. <laughs> you know, that, like, Live Nation had a publication yeah. that, that you wrote for. But the, anyway... The, good news, who, who, the, good, the, the upside of that sort of publication is that I would get the opportunity to talk to guys like, say, Art Alexakis from Ever, Everclear, uh, the lead singer from Filter, um, and uh-huh. 90s alt-rock dudes. I mean, like, we... They're, they're, I'm just going to give away the next million-dollar idea of to have... Um, you know, e- the Eve Six guy will probably host it, where you just do a podcast and talk to '90s alt rock guys. Because, you know, look, I mean, do I listen to Short Bus or Title of Record these days? Not really. But you talk to a guy like, um, you know, Richard Patrick, and they've got stories from a time where the music industry was still thriving, and. That to me uh, is just a recipe for an interview that can exceed far beyond uh, you know what their music does. I mean, I don't know. Like I, I remember in the guitar world reading like really funny interviews with Gavin Rossdale. Um, right. Yeah. Oh yeah, Rossdale. I I've read interviews with him. He seems like a great guy. Yeah, he, I have to say, based on his interviews. Yeah. And, and so anyone anyone like that, um, I'm. I mean, for the most part, I would say with 95% of interviews I do, I end up liking the music more than, like, after I'm done interviewing the person than when I started. Um, I can, uh, you know, this is obviously not a subject I'm, I'm going to discuss publicly, but about artists who I liked less after I interviewed them. Uh, oh, man, that, that that's a great topic for an Yeah, episode. or, like, which artist do you follow on Twitter because, like, they have an incredible Twitter account, but you don't really fuck with their music, like... I don't think I'm ready to have that discussion either. Or or the reverse, where you really like their work, and then they get on Twitter, yeah, like, oh, and you're like, ah, I like it less. There's definitely some examples of that for me. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's one person that I interviewed where I went in liking his music, and then at the end, I thought like he, he was clearly 
like so dumb <laughs> that it made me not like his music anymore. It just made me feel like a fool for liking his music. And uh, I'm really close to saying this person's uh, name, but maybe I won't. That just seems maybe, mean. Maybe this is like bonus episode material. Yeah. Like that's how our we, Patreon. We, we got to start a Patreon. Yeah. Like IndieCast After Dark. Yeah. Fi- fi- or IndieCast Undercover. $5 every month and we start naming names. But you have to like sign a non-disclosure to get into this Patreon. So like, we'll tell you if you pay us, but you can't tell other people uh, who we're talking about. I mean, because then we could just unleash the DMs. Like you and I DM uh, each other. Yeah. And we're, we're taking shots at certain things that we wouldn't on this show. That's where we could <laughs> empty all those DMs into. Yeah. I like this idea. The, the NDA Patreon. For this show, we'll we'll get that going at some point if we if we start hurting for money. Um, let's get into the meat of our episode. Yes, and this is gonna be fun because we're talking about uh, two. I guess you call, you can call them bands. I mean, in a way, they're yeah. they're, they're real similar because it's, it's like one person really with a supporting cast of hired guns that they that they use on the road. But it's really it's a you know it's like a nine inch nail situation. It's like one person. Although even Nine Inch Nails, yeah. this isn't true of anymore because of Atticus Ross. Yes, and, and, and Richard Trent Patrick. I, I think he was in, I, I think that was his deal. He was in Nine Inch Nails for a bit. Yeah, he was. Right. Um, <laughs> so, um, but anyway, we're talking about Illuminati hotties. We are. We're going to talk about Strand of Oaks. Two quintessential indie cast acts that uh, you and I have both written about these uh, people. Yeah. And, and we've written positive things in the past. Um Let's talk about Illuminati Hotties first. Uh-huh. The, uh, this is the project of a musician and producer named Sarah Tudson. Uh, she got started uh, about three years ago. She put out a record called Kiss Your Frenemies. Mm-hmm. And originally, uh, she was working behind the scenes. Like, she had worked on records as an engineer for, you know, by like Lady Gaga, Coldplay, Barbra Streisand. The Hamilton soundtrack, I think, uh, she yeah. was involved in. And I mean, so really, like, an in-demand... Uh, engineer and uh she ended up making this mix cd of different songs of of varying genres to show off her engineering skills and producing skills Mm -hmm. uh to show that she could do lots of different kinds of music and that ended up being her debut album kiss your frenemies uh which was a really good record came out in 2018 i believe you and i both Mm -hmm. talked up that record back in the day the tiny Um, tiny engines days (laughs) The Tiny Engines Days. And then uh, last year, she put out a quickie record called Free IH. Uh, and in a way, that ended up being her breakthrough. Because I feel like a lot more people started talking about her music. It was this, She was in this situation again with Tiny Engines, mm-hmm. where she wanted to leave the label because that label became beleaguered for many reasons that we won't get into <laughs> right ba- now. Almost embattled, if you will. Uh, yeah, embattled. Embattled is a better word than beleaguered. Um <laughs> And she had to make this record to satisfy a contractual obligation to, to finally free herself from the label. And it was this 23-minute record. It was noisier than uh, her first album, a little bit more spastic. Mm-hmm. I think the absurdist humor aspect of what she does really started to come out mm-hmm. on that record. And that carries over to the new one, Let Me Have One More, which was for the most part made before Free IH, although I think she did some work after that album came out. Um, but I feel like this is like one of my favorite albums of the year. I, I like this album a lot. As I said before, she works in a lot of different genres, although I think her home base is this sort of bubblegum, sugar-fueled, 
type of pop punk. Yeah. Uh, that's her core brand. And, you know, the thing I really appreciate about her is that we're in a period of indie rock right now that is especially dour. You know, a lot of very quiet records, a lot of very slow-paced albums, a lot of lyrics about depression and mental illness and, you know, existential anguish <laughs> with the world. And with Sarah, she also writes about a lot of those things, depression, heavy subjects. But she comes at it from a much more irreverent point of view. Mm-hmm. And she marries it to music that is a lot more upbeat, Again, there's a spastic aspect to what she does. Like to me, it's almost like um, there's like a Tim and Eric element almost mm-hmm. sometimes to her music and also uh, her videos, uh, where she's taking an idea to the extreme where it almost becomes absurdly grotesque. Yeah, uh, and it's a very unique aesthetic, and I I really appreciate it again because I think in this moment of indie, it does seem unique to me um, that she can. Again, write about heavy subjects, but from this almost, again, absurdist comic point of view. Although it's not like comedy rock or anything. She's not making jokes. It's just an irreverent attitude, I think, that really adds to what she's doing musically. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting that you like say that it's kind of goes against the grain of what indie rock, what's happening in indie rock right now. Whereas I see, you know, a lot of stuff like uh you know the 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 return of pop punk and uh you know Olivia Rodrigo and right. you know like Pom Pom Squad or things like that and it's like Illuminati Hotties was like kind of ahead of the curve right when Sarah co-produced that Pom Pom yeah, Squad yeah and they're touring record. together as well so and they're touring together and yeah there was some dialogue about whether Olivia Rodrigo was jacking <laughs> The aesthetic of, of Illuminati Hotties, and I and I and I interviewed Sarah last week, and I asked her about that. And for the record, she is a fan of of yeah. Olivia Rodrigo. I think she takes the attitude that if Olivia Rodrigo can do this in the mainstream, that's probably going to help me. Yeah, too. Exactly, and I think that this year it was ri- between um, you know, Kiss Your Frenemies was kind of like a slow burn um, sort of success. Like I I know that like. Once people, and, you know, I know that Sarah is very self-aware and, you know, does things very intentionally. But, like, the name is, would I'm sure there are quite a few people, myself included, who would see the name and think, oh, that's the awesomest name. Or it's like, I'm not listening to something called Illuminati Hotties. And then, um, yeah, as more people kind of, like, discover the depth of her work, like, I'm a big fan of her in ballad mode. Like, those are my favorite songs on uh, Kiss Your Frenemies as well as the new one, which... In a weird sort of way, like, uh, it seems like a, I don't know, like an inverse of, like, what's supposed to happen. Like, all the, the singles are always the ones, like, pool hopping or that, like, are humorous and they have, like, that Tim and Eric sort of slapstick appeal. Like, I remember uh, I saw her uh, open up for American football uh, two years ago and, you know, they had the cheerleader uniforms on and... You know, my fiance looks at her and is like, this must have been a musical theater person. I'm like, yeah. You know, in a, in a way, like her being from L.A. and everything, like she in sort of like a a, a sort of like a Phoebe Bridgers sort of way where it, it just seems very natural uh, for her to be this kind of multi hyphenate of comedy, of production, of, you know, to the point where like the albums like aren't the whole thing in a way. Like I think you can be like a huge fan of Sarah Tudson without – necessarily um listening to illuminati hottie albums like you know 
twice a week or whatever. Like this album is a lot for me. Um, I have to be in a very specific headspace to want to put it on as opposed to something that is a little more um, vague or ambivalent. Um, you know, when I listen to it, I like it, but it can be very difficult for me to sit down. It's like, okay, I'm going to like, uh, I'm going to listen to this Illuminati hotties album. Uh, and I'm going to listen to it all the way through because it's a lot. <laughs> See, I mean, I think one thing I really love about this record is that it does move, I think through different modes pretty smoothly that you do have the songs. Like when you say this album is a lot, yeah. I, I have a feeling you're referring to, you know, songs like that. Yeah, I don't know and how I, to say that. Like, we have to sing the chorus. I, that's that's what's genius about well, that song title. I asked her how to pronounce this. Actually, she said she pronounces it "moo." <laughs> so we'll just say we'll just call it "moo," which was one of the singles from the record. And she's, you know, very kind of again, it's a spastic delivery. She's almost like screaming the chorus. Yeah, it is a song that I could see people not feeling too much because again, it's very it's very in your face. But then it goes from there to the almost like film noir sounding song. It's like that Americana song that Buck oh, Meek yeah. is on. Where, and this is hilarious because like Buck Meek, of course, he's the guitar player in Big Thief. He recently played uh, with Bob Dylan on his Shadow Kingdom video that he put mm. out uh, this summer. He's an in-demand guitar player, but he doesn't play guitar on that song. He only does, the. there's a voiceover uh, narration that happens in the outro. Yeah that Buck Meek does. So, I mean, I appreciate that, like, the meta quality of, you know, enlisting this, like, well-respected guitar player and just having him talk, not having him play guitar. Uh, but anyway, it does go from the spastic to the more contemplative. And as you were saying, there's some really great ballads on this record. Yeah. Um, I just think she's, like, a really talented person. I think she's a really good songwriter. Um, and, you know, she's great in the studio. It'll be interesting to see how she evolves as she goes along because it really does seem like she might make another record like this or she might make a record that sounds nothing like this. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to say with her, but I think she she has the talent to do like lots of different kinds of yeah, music. Yeah, and I think that it, we could be witnessing like a future where like Illuminati Hotties is like not the It's almost like um, with like Bleachers or in Jack Antonoff or whatever where. She's like just so in demand uh, as like a writer or a mixer or an engineer, or just like a conceptual artist that um, y the band itself might be just something that kind of happens every now and again. Yeah, I mean, stop hiring Jack Antonoff and hire Sarah Tutson to work on your record, <laughs> you know, and, and because there is a similarity in aesthetics there, but I just find that what Sarah does is more interesting at this point than what, what Jack Antonoff is doing. So. No, taking shots at Jack there. I'm sorry, Jack, but I'm just saying, yeah. give Sarah Tutson some work. Um, let's move over to Strand of Oaks, which is a band, again, that you and I have written a lot about. It's a project of a guy named Tim Showalter, who, full disclosure, we've both gotten to know. Yeah. Just as a, just as a person, extremely nice guy, very gregarious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we both loved him as a person. Uh and he had a very indie cast like arc. He was born in Indiana. Mm -hmm. Then he lived in Philly for a long time. And now he lives in Austin. Uh, I feel like those are all three strong indie cast regions uh, for Tim to hail from. <laughs> um, but uh, I know I first encountered Tim uh, around the time of Pope Kill Dragon mm -hmm. 
because of a blog called Muzzle of Bees, which is based in Wisconsin. Shout out to wow. Ryan Madison, by the way. I think Ryan is now Tim's manager, uh, but he used to run a blog called Muzzle of Bees. But I know, like, by Pope Killdragon, that's still like your favorite. Yeah. Strand of Oaks. Yeah, that that one was the first one I discovered him as well. Like, if we want to talk about like shuttered music blogs. I think that was like an E Music's recommended album. Uh, oh, yeah! Like nice. it, we we, we want to like talk about 2010 in its most accurate terms. Um, I discovered it through there, and it sounds not a lot like any like it doesn't sound like much that he's done, um, particularly since he got uh, picked up by Dead Oceans. It's a extremely imaginative folk uh, indie album where. You know, he imagines himself like avenging the death of John Belushi or yeah, which one? No, Jim, John Belushi, right? Yeah. Jim is still with okay, us. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So it's he's, John Belushi. He's, he's probably hanging out in a barbecue singing Blues Brothers songs yeah, right Jim, now. So God bless Jim Belushi. Yeah. Jim Belushi's got that loud. Um, I know he's trying to like sell weed on Twitter, but um, oh, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, there are other songs where he just kind of imagines like uh, being the bastard son of like John Kennedy. It's just... All of these, ver- and there's a lot of, you know, like Pope Kill Dragon, a lot of like uh, mythological uh, antiquated imagery. There's like a doom metal interlude. Just wildly original album. Uh, I absolutely loved it. And it's still like something I recommend to anyone who's in that kind of orbit of folky indie rock. And, uh, but, you know, when I really got on board uh, with Stranded Oaks, like I saw him perform, I think it must have been at like, Spaceland in LA. He was opening for like Joe Pug or something like that. And we end up like shooting the shit at the bar. We're like talking about Machina, the machines of God for an hour or something like Smashing that. Pumpkins. Yes. And he's a huge Smashing Pumpkins huge. fan. Yeah. He, he writes lyrics about them. Uh, James Iha's on the new album. Uh, and, and, and you could see like as his career progresses that he's aspiring to make music more in that vein. Like with Pope Kill Dragon, that's kind of the apex of his, like of the folky era of his career, and then he put out Heel in twenty four. Well, we're, you're missing Dark Shores. That well, we're not going to walk through every okay. one of his records because we have to because we, we have because we have to get to his latest yes. record, which is called In Heaven. Um, but just saying, I think Heel was the turning point. It was that you're referring to from the more of the folk thing to this update of alt rock, you know, guitar heavy, uh, very anthemic, and. Uh, since then, I mean, he's had some ups and downs with that. I think Heal was a very well-received record because of the music and also because it was a very autobiographical record. He wrote about some problems that he was having in his marriage. He wrote about his house burning down. I think he also had a really bad uh, car accident around that time where he almost got killed. So there was a lot of crazy things that uh, had happened to him that he was drawing uh, from for his his records at the time. So it really kind of took on this like cathartic edge in a lot of his music um and he's had some ups and downs i think he's put out like he put out a record called hard love that people weren't crazy about i think that record's like a little underrated but um this new record in heaven um i think is his best record since heal and i would say that if there was like a a trinity of strand of oaks records i would say pope kill dragon heal and then this new one would be the one like if you've never heard Strand of Oaks before, those would be the three I would recommend. Um, and I think that he's really come into his own as a person who has embraced more of a rock band sound mm-hmm. and and really tried to push out in a very lush, 
grandiose kind of direction. Like this record in a lot of ways reminds me of like mid nineties Britpop, mm-hmm. you know, of like Champagne Supernova yeah. or Bittersweet Symphony, like songs like that, mm-hmm. uh, that just have an uplift to them, an epic feel. Um, and I think he's been moving toward that for a long time. And this record to me feels like the greatest realization of those ambitions that he's pulled off yet. Yeah. He, he, and, and this obviously comes across in the music he makes. He's just like a fan of music as much as anything, which I think makes this music very approachable. And, you know, maybe in some ways like uh, ensures that it will never quite have like the mystique of a champagne supernova or like a bittersweet symphony. But I do agree that this is his best one since heel. Um, you know, the reason I had mentioned dark shores before is that he kind of has this like every other album sort of thing where it's like he really goes for it and connects and then there's an album that kind of um in his words doesn't quite go all the way like he's been very critical himself of uh you know hard love of like man like i knew what i was gonna trying to go for like he was going for more like a ravey uh madchester sort of thing and he just didn't go all the way and you and i think with this one um there's kind of a comfort in it like i don't think he like it's an ambitious record but it's not quite as striving in the same way the other ones were which maybe were their downfall because he's he's very indie cast in the sense that he's just been this like underdog with like shit luck and underappreciated and i think that was a big part of heel as well um after he released this like flop album and just had to just kind of start all over again um and it's been interesting to kind of see him be, I don't know, growing into this. I don't, I don't say journeyman as like a pejorative sort of thing, but as this guy who reliably releases albums every two years, um, he's not going to get dropped from the label. He's not going to end up having to figure out what the hell he's going to do with his life. Um, and there's a comfort to in heaven uh, that uh, I don't get from the other ones, you know. Yeah, and you know, to your point. I mean, he's toured a lot with Jason Isbell. He's, like, established a relationship with My Morning Jacket. Yeah. I think his records would slot in a lane where if you like the War on Drugs, you're going to probably like Strand of Oaks. Yeah. There's a similar kind of vibey Heartland Rock feel to a lot of his post-heel work. Um, so, again, I mean, I feel like if you like all the artists I just mentioned that you probably already know Strand of Oaks, mm-hmm. but he's, he still does seem like a guy who's, like, a little under the radar uh, so this is a great opportunity, I think, to catch up with his, his catalog. Uh, and I know like for you too, like you were talking before about Pope Killdragon, mm. it would be interesting to hear him do another record like that, where it had this, again, like you said, a very imaginative, uh, mythology to it. I mean, cause he's really taken to writing more autobiographical songs mm-hmm. since then. Uh, I will say that I love on the new record, there's... Uh, recurring Jimi Hendrix references. Like, there's a song that talks about his last concert in Germany in 1970, which I think was about two weeks before he died. Uh, and there's uh, a really great song on the record called Jimmy and Stan yeah. that was released as a single. Re- and it's about his cat, Stan, passed away, and he has a fantasy about his cat hanging out in heaven with Jimi Hendrix. Uh which, again, I mean, I think that is Tim at his best, where it's something heartfelt, but it's also, like, a little eccentric at the same time. That seems to be his sweet spot. When he can do that, it's something really special, I think, happening on his records. 
All right, we now reach the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? Yeah, so this is this is kind of a big week for under-the-radar uh, IndieCast core. I want to give a shout-out to uh, Couplet, which is the new record from Tanner Jones of uh, You Blew It. Uh, there's I have an interview running today on Uproxx. It's their album LP2, if you're a fan of the Postal Service, Mice Parade, The No Twist. Uh, check that out. I also want to give attention to the new Howdy record, um, they're a band from Austin, Texas. They made albums that they've called in the past pillow core. It's more kind of like slow core, folky in that big thief realm. This new album, True Love, is, it's not their overt pop move, but it's definitely the one where if you've heard of Howdy, but never quite got what they do, this is the one for you. Um, I get a kind of wholesome dudes rock, best buds, Japan droids, uh, spirit from this album if not necessarily the sound of it it sounds like quite the opposite of it but um you know they'll have songs about uh air drumming to everlong uh on the radio just about like walking around texas uh in your youth it's kind of a richard linklater sort of thing going on as well and just like a really well-produced uh catchy album that hits a v- like I- i'm gonna steal steve's uh, Steve's uh, terrain right here and talk about what it might be like to on the first October weekend of the year sitting on your back porch having a beer thinking about you know going to college yes. at a big public university and watching college football oh yeah because these dudes are sports guys <laughs> like they're definitely jocks I interviewed them they played basketball and baseball throughout high school um, yeah it, it's like it's if you like any of the things I had mentioned or let's say uh, a more low-key version of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Some of the songs remind me of like War on War, Heavy Metal Drummer. Um, this is, th- you know, this this is kind of a crossover indie rock album that on most, I think, a year from now, we'll, it, or two years from now, when Howdy releases their next album, where they would be uh, the meat of an indie cast episode. Yeah, I, I was gonna say I, I'm glad you brought this record up because I like this record quite a bit too. And I, I don't know if you would call this an appropriate comparison, but I've always kind of slotted them in my mind with like Alex G. Oh, absolutely, you know, that, yeah. Where it's like a lo-fi aesthetic, but also writing, you know, these great kind of almost like Americana type songs. Mm-hmm. Um, where and that's the zone that they're in. So it's like not totally straightforward. It kind of makes it more interesting sonically because of the way that they attack it. But uh, yeah, that's a really good record. That's a good band. Um, and yeah, I think that they're, I mean, like how popular would you say they are right now? I feel like they actually have a bigger audience than maybe they get credit for, but they haven't quite blown up. Pretty popular. It's funny. They're on the, they're on tour right now, or at least were recently with this band called Dayglow, who has like five and a half, like almost six, six million followers uh, monthly on Spotify and nobody talks about them. They're like a band like Still Woozy or like all these bands that like populate indie feel good playlists and are just like wildly popular and never get talked about. So Howdy, it, you know, yeah, Howdy's a band that's maybe not at Alex G level, but like I don't think they're there yet, but they're definitely popular. They're probably more popular than most people think. Yeah, I think this record will probably add to that popularity. You know, that that should be an episode of this show if, of, of talking about absurdly popular bands that never get talked about Dayglow, glass animals still woozy i mean they're uh boy pablo like this stuff is 
just insanely popular and maybe yeah, that's kind of like, like this maybe that's kind of the point <laughs> you know that we don't talk it's like, about yeah, it. it it's like the stuff that always comes up on spotify after you're done listening to an album and you haven't noticed that it's finished and then you hear another song it's like oh that sounds like something i like and then you look at it and it's like who the hell is that band yeah and you realize yeah they've been they have like 50 million streams of this song um for my recommendation, I'm going to uh, do some self-promotion here. I, I did an interview this week with B.J. Burton, mm. who is a sought-after producer and engineer. Uh, most recently, uh, he produced the great album Hey What for Low, uh, but he has a long history of working on, I think, pretty great and influential records. He was uh, a, a participant in Yeezus back in the day. He was a co-pilot of the Bonnie Bear record, 22 A Million. Um, and I sat down with him uh, at his studio in Minneapolis this week, and we had a really great conversation. And I have to say that even if you don't care about any of the records I just mentioned, uh, that it'd be worth reading this just because BJ is really candid uh, talking about his relationship with Kanye, his relationship with Justin Vernon. He actually said some disparaging things about the record I, I oh. which he contributed to. He, he co-wrote the song Hey Ma, which was nominated for the Record of the Year Grammy, but he didn't work on a lot of that record. And he said flat out to me, he's like, I don't think that's a great record. Yeah. I think it's all over the place. Yeah, we agree on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, and uh, again, he was really candid with me, and but he's also like a really nice guy and I think a really insightful person. So if you're interested in indie rock just in general, I think this would be worth reading. So go on Up Rocks. Look up my name or just Google <laughs> Uproxx BJ Burton. This profile will come up. I think uh, if you haven't read it already, it'll be of most of, of, of the highest interest to listeners of this show. Um, that about does it for this episode of IndieCast. Uh, thank you again for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie and I recommend five albums per week and we'll send it directly to your email box. 